Section 5 of Prince and Heretic. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 5 William of Orange. The morrow of the wedding, in the still early hours before the tourneys, mummings and festivals had begun, while Anna was in the hands of women again being combed, perfumed and arrayed for the gaieties of the day, the prince left the town hall unattended and crossed the market square to the handsome residence where his brothers were lodged. Count Louis and Count Adolphus were still abed, weary with dancing and feasting, but Count John was in the great library of the house writing letters. This Nassau was a fine member of his fine race, well-made, alert, with intelligent noble features, though blunter than those of his brothers, and too broad for perfect comeliness. His eyes were dark and unusually brilliant, his close hair and moustaches light brown. He had not the great courtliness and magnificence of William, nor the singular charm of his younger brother, but he was a very frank, open, high-minded gentleman of a winning appearance, though somewhat grey for his twenty-five years." He still wore his morning gown of purple velvet, with great sleeves perflued in gold. Like all his house, he was eminently a grand seigneur. When his brother entered, he rose and greeted him with real affection. Although William had so early left his home for a new faith and more splendid fortunes, which had made him an intimate of an emperor and placed him high above all his family and rank, his relations with his parents and his brothers and sisters had always remained warm and sincere. The recent death of his father had left him Count of Nassau and head of the Dillenburg branch of his house, and his brothers regarded him with augmented devotion and affection both as their hereditary chief and the most famous and brilliant wearer of their name. "'So early,' said Count John. "'I had news from Mecklen last night,' said William, who had his agents everywhere. "'Did you hear?' "'Nay,' replied his brother. "'How should I hear everything yesterday save jests and compliments? And how is little Anna?' William raised his brows and smiled. He moved to the sunny window and seated himself in the red-cushioned embrasure. John, with a quick excuse, turned to finish his letter, which was to his mother at Dillenburg, giving her an account of yesterday's ceremony. The prince looked out on to the market square, the long tension of his marriage negotiations being now over. He felt a kind of disappointment mingled with his relief, almost as if in his heart he doubted if this much-disputed match had been worth the immense pains he had taken to forward it. Hitherto his relations with women had always been pleasant. He had been first married, when he was seventeen, to Anna of Egmont, the wealthy heiress of the von Burens. Her hand had not been sought by him, but had been in the nature of a magnificent gift from the favor of the emperor. Anna, however, had been gentle, prudent, tender, and he had lived with her in contentment and peace. The other women whom he had known or courted since her death had all had some quality to attract or enthrall. He was a knight who could choose among the finest by reason of his person as well as of his rank, and his taste had always led him to the gay, the magnificent, the loving. The few hours since he had met his bride yesterday had seemed to show him a specimen of womanhood with which he was unfamiliar, the fretful, deformed, passionate, and ignorant girl who was now his wife a little bewildered, a little troubled him. Already he had been stung by her tactless exhibition of the pride that could rate him her inferior. Already he had winced a little at the unattractiveness her hysteric excitement and her over-sumptuous attire had emphasized. Count John closed up and sealed his letter, then glanced at William, who still sat thoughtfully. The sun was over him from head to foot, and sparkled in the thick waves of his chestnut hair and in the bronze and gold threads of the dark green damask doublet he wore. "'What news from Mecklen?' asked his younger brother." 
Grenville made a public entry to celebrate his appointment as archbishop, replied William briefly. No one of consequence was there, and the people went into their houses and put the shutters up. It is believed that he will enforce the Inquisition in the Netherlands, remarked John thoughtfully. He most assuredly will, said William. He seems to have unbounded influence with the king. John looked at him and hesitated. He saw that his brother was unusually grave, and he had a shrewd guess at the cause, but he did not venture to probe William's unusual reserve. "'What did you come to speak of?' he ventured at last. "'Of Cardinal Granville,' answered William, looking at him. Count John cast down his brilliant eyes. He was a keen follower of the political events in the Netherlands, and knew perfectly well how matters stood between Cardinal Granville and his brother. It was a difficult position, and one that promised great storms in the future.' Anthony Perrineau, at first Bishop of Arras, recently created Archbishop of Mechlin and Cardinal Granville, had at one time been an intimate and supporter of William of Orange, and was still by the world considered his friend. His brother had been William's tutor, and numbers of his relatives held posts and offices in William's lavish and magnificent household. The prince, as stadtholder of Holland, Utrecht, and Zeeland, and member of the state council, and the priest as the most powerful member of all the three boards which advised and controlled Margaret of Parma, Philip's recently appointed regent in the Netherlands, had been much brought together, and at first had works as colleagues and friends. But lately, Grinvell's violence toward heresy, his smiling insolence, his rapacity, his underhand intrigues with Philip, had alienated him from William, who was averse to persecution, and, moreover, since their last stormy parting in the streets of Flushing, no longer in such high favor with his master, Philip. The friendship between Grenville and William had changed to coolness, then to dislike, and would soon, it seemed, approach open rupture, the priest's new dignities, which set him above all Margaret's counsellors, who had always regarded him as their inferior, he was the son of a Burgundian commoner, did not please the prince, and this triumphal entry into Mechlin during his absence was a piece of defiance on the part of the new cardinal that further irritated him. "'This parano grows too great,' he said now impulsively. "'He has the ear of the regent.' He checked himself, looked at his brother, who was watching him eagerly, and then added, John, what do you think would happen if the Inquisition were set up in the Netherlands as it is in Spain? The states-general, the councils, the staffholders would protest. And if their protests were of no avail, then... I do not know, said John gravely. The people would revolt, replied William of Orange, for I tell you nearly all in the Netherlands are at heart of the Reformed faith. When his majesty delivered to me my charge, he counseled me to stamp out heresy, and he gave me several papers containing lists of those suspected. There were many hundreds of them. Some great ones I warned, and I burned the lists. But Cardinal Granville has already ferreted out many whose names were thereon. I did not know of this, exclaimed John. Lock it in your heart, said the prince. I was bred a heretic, he added with a smile. You have always seemed one of us to me, returned the brother simply, and never a true papist. Oh, I am a good Catholic, said William, looking out of the window, but I do not think any man should lose his life for his faith, nay, nor his property, nor his honors. I believe in tolerance, John, and there are few of that mind. It would be a monstrous thing if you should become a persecutor, said Count John, seeing our father was the first prince to bring the reformed faith into Germany. Had I been of that inclination, replied the prince, I should not have made this match. What do you think was the reason of it, if not the alliance of Saxony and Kessel, these Protestant states? He rose now, and, looking very earnestly at his brother, came forward into the room. John, he said, narrowing his eyes a little, it is in my heart to tell you of something I have as yet told no man. Do you keep it secret, even from our brothers, who are as yet very young? Speak what you wish, it stays with me, replied Count John. 
It is this, then. When I and the Duke of Alba were hostages in France, there was an occasion when I was with King Henry hunting. In the forest of his son it was. And we two being apart from the others, the king fell to talking of the peace between him and King Philip, and his great eagerness for the concluding of this. Then, drawing on in his discourse, he did disclose to me a deep design there was between him and my king to exterminate heretics, which design the Duke of Alva was privy to in arranging with him, and he thought I too knew of it, so discussed it with me. And it seemed that this secret project was no less than to destroy all heretics in the realms of France and Spain, and to so uproot the doctrines of Luther that they would never grow again. And this, he said, might be partly done by a general slaughter of these heretics, but the time was not yet ripe and from his speech I understood that if one looked but askance at an image, he might be cast into flames. "'And you? What did you do?' asked John, startled. "'I feigned that I knew as he thought I did, marked and noted what he said, and breathed no word of it,' replied the prince simply, as if such self-control and astuteness were the commonest things. Count John was silent with astonishment and interest. And therefore, as you remember, continued William, as soon as I was returned, I did influence the States General to beg the King to send forth the foreign soldiery, which he could not well refuse. Ah, it was you, not the States, exclaimed John, as his Majesty guessed, smiled William. Not the States, but you, you, he said in the second person. John, that was in a flushing street, and I left him there and would not see him to his ship. But since then, he has been as favorable to you as always, said Count John anxiously. Even in the matter of this marriage, which was hateful to him, he gave in and sent you a gift. Yet, replied the prince, he would put me and the other stuffholders beneath the foot of Grenville, who is, I do not doubt, his chosen instrument to commence this work of exterminating heresy in the States. And you? I was much dismayed when first I heard from King Henry of this ruthless policy, for I knew it meant the ruin and death of many virtuous people. And then I resolved I would do what I could for them, especially in the Netherlands. And so I will. Count John looked slightly surprised to hear his magnificent brother speak with such unwanted gravity. "'Why, who is to withstand King Philip and King Philip's men, such as Grenville?' he asked rather hopelessly. "'The House of Nassau might do it,' smiled William lightly. "'You do not mean to oppose the king,' cried the Count. "'Why, God forbid,' said the prince in the same tone, "'but I might oppose his policies, and I shall certainly put a stone or so in the path of my Lord Cardinal.' "'I fear this marriage has done you little good after all,' remarked his brother regretfully. "'Here is the king and the regent displeased, and the landgrave of Castle Anger, too. "'Apart from your religion,' he says, his son told me, "'you have too many debts to take a wife.' "'Those same debts must be looked to,' said William, "'in the assurance of a man of unlimited wealth and unassailable position. "'And the story has got abroad,' continued the Count ruefully, "'of that banquet you gave, with the cloth and plates and dishes all of sugar.' and the landgrave is spreading it round Saxony and Castle as a proof of your great extravagance. And what of these festivities? laughed William. Will they not cost every thaler of the Fraulein's dower that has been so much vaunted? Count John sighed. The Nassau family had largely built up their present position through prudent and splendid marriages, and he was sorry that his brother, who had married the richest heiress in the Netherlands for his first wife, should not have done more magnificently with his second choice, for he saw nothing to recommend Anna but her rank, her father's fame, and the possible alliance of her Protestant kinsfolk, all, Count John thought, doubtful benefit. William came up to his brother and placed his shapely hand on his shoulder. "'These debts will be looked to,' he repeated." "'Wait till I return to Brussels.' The door opened hastily, and Louis and Adolphus entered, both in their great tourney harness, and laughing together from sheer gaiety and amusement. 
Adolphus was equipped from head to foot in a crimson-padded jousting suit studded with gilt metal nails. He was the youngest of the four, no more than a youth, noble in appearance, and wholly lovable, fairer than his brother in colouring, but of the same slenderness of make. Both greeted William with great affection, and Louis, who was clattering in gold-embossed cuirass, quisses, vambrances, and greaves, broke out laughing with the jest that had so diverted him and Adolphus. Highness, we want the old magician to foretell the future for us. He has a spirit who can reveal all things. He said he would call it if we wished, and ask what our fate would be. Tush, said John hastily, but like it were a mummery, or else a trick of the devil. But William was always ready for curious trials and experiments, though he had strangely little belief in any such things. Who is this magician? he asked gaily. A Frenchman, who was his abode with the elector's alchemist, replied Adolphus. They say he has done wonderful things. The elector declares he really has such a spirit. His grace is very credulous, remarked Louis. He will take no action, but after he has counseled his charts and his tables, his wheels of fortune and his crystals. I believe, persisted John, that the devil is in it all. Well, declared Adolphus, the man has come in here tonight before supper. Then we shall have a little leisure. I will come if I may, said the prince. Perhaps I shall have time while Anna is with her tirewomen. He took up his hat and prepared to leave. He saw that there was no chance of a further private talk with John, and he was too much of a courtier to risk being late in his return to the town hall. As he passed Louis and Adolphus, he put them back against the wall and laughingly criticized their appointments, while John came and limped on his shoulder. The four brothers, all so young, so charming, so magnificent, so full of noble life and vigor, made a fair picture as they stood so, laughing together from sheer good spirits because this was the lovely morning of their days and none of them had yet known sorrow. In their slender knightly persons, the very erect carriage of their small heads, their warm coloring, something quick and fiery in their movements, there showed a great likeness between them, proclaiming their common blood, but each was a distinct personality, the prince dark, dominant, superb, despite his gay, smiling air, John, serious, lightly austere, Louis, graceful, charming, modest, with his long, light brown locks and laughing eyes, Adolphus, blonde, handsome, eager, very princely in bearing. So still laughing they parted, William hastening across the sunny square, where every cap was lifted and every head bent to him to the town hall. As he approached the antechamber to his apartments, he saw Anna through an open door. She was ready clothed for the midday repast, an attorney in a gown of violet cloth of gold, veiled in falls of silver lace and finished by a ruff of pure gold thread a foot deep. William heard her sharp voice raised and instinctively slackened his step. A lock of Anna's tresses had caught in the stiff edge of her ruff, one of her women, in disengaging it, chanced to pull the crimped hair. Anna turned and smacked the girl's face smartly enough to bring the tears to her eyes. The prince saw this little episode, a new type she was indeed, this fierce little cat with her claws always ready, he thought. As he entered the room, Anna became all softness and affection and gentleness. William saluted her rather absently, but she flushed with joy at his conventional courtly compliments, which her inexperience took literally— "'Tell me of Brussels,' she implored, clinging to his arm. "'What shall I do in Brussels?' "'Amuse yourself, mummy,' replied William lightly, "'and learn the courtesies of the country,' he added with a gentle sarcasm which was wholly unperceived by the bride. End of section 5